You're listening to The Dish, a podcast of the Medical Laboratory Professionals Association of Ontario. This season, we're focusing on how labs have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some have rapidly ramped up testing and are wrestling with incredible workloads, while others are completing other testing, compensating for those who are redeployed elsewhere. This month, we're featuring the shared Sinai Health UHN Microbiology Lab. Their team went from 250,000 tests annually to providing an additional half a million COVID-19 tests, as well as being the first lab in the province to offer COVID-19 testing without Public Health Ontario laboratory confirmations. If a lab is down for any reason, or as backlogs increase, they have offered to shoulder the load and get Ontario back on track, and have served Ontarians from Windsor to Niagara to Pembroke to Sioux Lookout and everywhere in between. We spoke with their team about what they've seen change and what they hope for the future, one year and over 2 million COVID-19 tests later. So I'm Tony Mazzulli. I'm the um, microbiologist-in-chief of the shared microbiology department between Sinai Health and University Health Network. Yeah, and I basically work for Christine. Whatever she tells me to do, I oh. try to make it happen. So I'm Christine Bruce. I'm the Senior Director for Lab Medicine at UHN. Uh, initially, though, I, I had the privilege of setting up the, the COVID lab with Tony and Jessica when I was leading the micro lab proper. Hi, I'm Jessica Burke. I'm the manager at the Sinai UHN Department of Microbiology Lab. And I worked with Christine and Dr. Mazzulli under their mentorship to help support the operations of COVID in our microbiology lab. You've done incredible work. Your micro team, you said, went from providing 20, 250,000 tests annually to providing an additional half a million COVID-19 tests as well. And you were one of the first, you were the, you were the first lab, I believe, to offer COVID-19 testing without uh, Public Health Ontario lab confirmations. So Christine, I'm wondering if you could start uh, mm-hmm. speaking to how you scaled up to that 200% increase so rapidly. Sure. I I think it's interesting when we put the application in, we were all so proud of getting to half a million, but I think we're edging closer now to uh, just under 2 million or so. So it's uh, a lot lot has happened in the time. And I would think that um, Tony and and Jessica will have completely different perspectives on on what they did, because I know that there were many times we were running in parallel and sometimes running into each other to, to make it happen. Uh, but I would say that there's there's a lot of stars that, that would need to align to, to make this happen. I think that personally, and this, I'll just talk from my view, but I think the initial approach was to really come up with creative ways to optimize what we had because nobody really knew what you needed to, to have in place. And so we, we had the opportunity to, to leverage some equipment that we thought would be sufficient in the moment, although nowhere near... What, what we would need, but you know, we looked at what do we have, what can we do, and, and let's let's give it a go. I remember, I think Tony and I actually said, well, let's give it a try, and had a little shoulder shrug, and thought, <laughs> let's see what's going to happen. Um, our lab was really lucky, though, uh, to have the gifts of capital, and, and with that luck, though, comes an incredible amount of responsibility to leverage it for the, for the greater good, and so accepting the responsibility was probably the biggest success lever to be able to scale. And so we had all the tools, we had the coalition of the willing building within the team to say, sure, I'd like to work on COVID stuff. Uh, And then we had to scale everybody around us, right? So the folks in HR and IT, supply chain, environmental services, all of those folks who typically provided a specific type of support to the lab suddenly had to magnify that um, as greatly as we did um, with the testing. 
And, and, you know, really, and that's what it took, I thought, to, to keep everybody engaged in the, the greater good. Ultimately, though, I would say that uh, the incredible grit and fortitude of the staff team and the medical leadership to just keep putting one foot in front of the other to get this done was and probably continues to be the secret sauce for the lab. And it really has been that kind of gargantuan effort for everyone to kind of just keep chipping away at one, one little step at a time. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious about from uh, Jessica Berger, uh, Dr. Mazzulli, if you have some impressions from your, your angle too, because everyone, like Christine said, everyone has their own um, understanding of a, a, a circumstance and, and their own kind of role in it. Sure, I'd like add to that. So, I mean, I think uh, clearly our ability to move from you know where we were to where we got to, I think, is really a, a tribute to Christine and and uh, Jessica. I mean, Christine, from the director perspective, um, making things happen, having the foresight to uh, plan, uh, realize what we needed, and, and and as I said, getting things done in terms of optimizing space, equipment. Uh, people onboarding new uh, resources um, and uh, supplies and, and reagents, which were the three, the four sort of key factors that we needed uh, to get to, you know, uh, ramp up our uh, capacity. Um, I think, you know, sure, there, there were difficult times uh, along the way, shortage of supplies, there's shortage of people. We continue to face these issues today. I mean, it's more than a year and a half later. Uh, but, uh, you know, I can recall back last January, February, when we were just hearing the initial reports of um, COVID uh, coming out of China, et cetera, you know, and senior management would ask, are we ready? Are we ready? And I think, uh, you know, it was hard to plan because we didn't know what was to come. But I think, you know, together as a team between, you know, myself, Jessica and, and Christine, uh, we're able to say, okay, I mean, it's time to move forward. And I think the reason we became first in terms of going live with testing was uh, seeing the writing on the wall and planning in advance. That readiness that comes from good direction and planning. Jessica, I'm wondering if you can uh, kind of speak to your, your perspective as um, from what that scaling up looked like from your role. So where Christine and Dr. Mazzulli were helping to prep all the logistics, working with the network to get everything set up, um, I really worked with staff to make sure our scheduling was there um, with Christine to make sure we had the appropriate number of resources and get all the technical pieces there. Um, our technical documents, how to run the test, how to report, make sure our staff are trained and ready to go. Um, that was, I think, that last component to make sure all the pieces put into place by Tony and Christine were successfully pushed into the lab. Right, like everything comes together there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you had mentioned the scaling up the laboratory information systems too. This is something that we've heard from a couple of other labs that people have had to navigate. I'm wondering if you can kind of like offer some insight to those other labs about how you guys approach that. Um, instrumentation is important um, and the, the tests are important and the processes are important and the policies are important. And then there are all of these other kind of things like, like lab systems and like Christine mentioned, admin that kind of also have to scale up simultaneously. IT has been a, a, a critical part of this whole process, um, to put it mildly. I mean, clearly 
uh, Ontario did not, and, and I don't feel badly saying it, have a good infrastructure and connectivity across different sites with the public health, both the public health unit and the public health lab. Um, so I think, you know, while rather than wait, I mean, Christine and I discussed it, I mean, and we moved forward. So as people were sending us samples from William Osler, from Trillium, you know, it was a question of, do we continue to do paper, you know, transcription and run the risk of, of errors? Or do we work towards our own solution while, you know, waiting for the province to move? And so I think, you know, uh, obviously with uh, Christine's support and, and push, we were able to create interfaces with many, not all of the uh, senders that were sending samples to us. And that made a tremendous difference in terms of workflow, error rates, not having to transcribe from paper uh, copies um, and being able to report back in a timely fashion because results are going back electronically. Uh, I, you know, we're now, as I said, more than a, a year and three or four months into this and I still look across the province and I still see there are numerous IT problems um, which uh, continue to plague and slow down the system and hamper the movement of critical information uh, to where it needs to go. Absolutely, yeah. Christine, did you wanna to add to that? Well, yeah, I mean, from an operations perspective, I mean, I, I, you know, Tony and I would sit on many calls and just be shaking our head that, you know, we're not focusing on the right thing as far as enabling the system to be super nimble. Um, mm -hmm. But that was also not necessarily our agenda item to always push, um, although I think everybody would have preferred that we had in the long run. But, you know, we had one IT guy. I think we, we still have one IT guy. Sinai trying to make this happen and connect into OLIS and do all these, these interface builds and what have you. And we brought in some support here and there to help enable some of those um, builds. And, and I think my perspective was, you know, we're watching the province try to, to do something, right? They're trying to come up with some meaningful, scalable solution that would create connectivity to meet their agenda, right? Around, around good data quality and, and good roll-ups of information that can be very readily shared. And, and so I think, you know, my view was that, okay, well, Sina needs to support that. So, okay, we'll, we'll do what, what Ontario Health would like to, to do as far as, as their way of engaging everybody. Although knowing it's not going to decompress the lab operation really at all at the end of the day, it just creates some continuity of information and, and flow. And so you know, to Tony's point, yeah, we're going to build some big interfaces for our largest users that will enable them on, on the back end as well, as far as, as managing the referred in report. Um, and, and that was really the best we could do. And I think that we, we keep going into these, this situation with that view of we're going to do what's the best for the patient and the team to keep them nimble, to keep them efficient and to keep everything as accurate as possible. And we'll still support the broader provincial agenda along the way. And when there's an opportunity to share what, what we would really like, then we continue to share that opinion and, and hope that it gets some uptake and some, some wind behind it. And, and that that might be on the broader provincial agenda at some point. But all we can do at this point is just keep sharing. This is what we need. This is what we'd like. Mm -hmm. Here's what we're doing in parallel to, to keep uh, the lights on. Well, while the other stuff is built up. Yeah, that sounds really, really wise. We're now, we had talked about this fact that we're a year out from the onset of the pandemic, a year and, and quite a bit now um, where, as we move forward into the year. And I'm just wondering if each of you could speak to what you have noticed has really changed uh, within your lab, within your lab systems, and maybe what you notice that should could still change, um, maybe kind of like looking towards the future, but hasn't just yet. Lab, what we've seen from staff 
um, is we are quite a fast paced lab. We like to bring in new technology, stay up to date. And this has brought it to a whole new level. Um, the staff have become very nimble, very agile to change and taking up all the new different um, testing like with VOCs now being in place. Uh, I think what we just spoke about with IT is, is going to be one of the big lessons learned and still continues to be a big focus in all the day-to-day -day operations. For me, I because I, I look at it, I've just always looked at the COVID response like quite, quite large because we're sitting on all of these committees where the, the view is large. Um, I think the connectivity within the Ontario Lab Network, and I've said this on other um, interviews and the like before, the, the connectivity of us as a lab community, so I want to be really clear, the network, I mean, of labs, not of the IT side of things, yeah. um, has largely improved. Um, and not to suggest that it was ever broken before, it just, we've always stayed in our lane historically um, as laboratories, whether it's in our Lynn, our catchment area, our city, our hospital, um, and COVID has required the provincial collaboration to, to just improve, to create universal access, right? Mm -hmm. So our abilities are so uniquely constrained, um, whether it's resources, space, logistics, expertise, whatever the, the right word is for your site, you have your unique issue. And so as a group, we have to ameliorate everybody's issue to give the province universal access to testing. Sinai was in a really luxurious place to be able to, to do that. And so, so those who had more to share, like, like a, a Sinai UHN, um, have been doing so, sharing more and with a much, with much more purpose. And, and I think that's really meaningful and a very new feature. I think it's really interesting that even in my day today, although I'm not walking through the, the Sinai lab anymore, counting boxes of pipette tips, when I walk <laughs> through UHN and I see the pipette tips, I, I reflect on the horse trading that I was doing last summer. It's like, okay, who needs this? Who needs that? You know, I've got three of these, you need four of those. Um, and I, and I do think, I think, yeah, I wonder if anybody in the COVID network could use these tips, right? Like in my genetics lab, there's lots of tips. Maybe someone could use this plastic more than, than my group could use. And so there's that gnawing feeling now that, that I always think about what does the COVID shop need? And I think that we're all going to be forever changed this way. We're going to look at pipette tips as one of the major success levers for any, any test. I think that's, that, that's a good thing. That's a really good takeaway to think beyond the walls of, of your lab. If that's the bigger outcome of COVID, then I'm good for that. Um, as far as things though, that, that need to, I think, continue to change, sure, we're gonna talk about IT forever and ever. I still feel like the, the needle moving on how to open up the capacity and capability of medical resources to do lab work still has to improve. I think the advocacy effort MLPAO have been tremendous and so there's an awareness of of lab as an institution and I find when I listen to all the different conversations that that Michelle weathers beautifully on um, on, on whatever uh, media outlet she's she's speaking at the the conversation quickly turns to oh well the method being fast is it rapid response well how are we testing for VOCs we're never coming back to the conversation about the resources and I wish that that needle could change a little bit more within the the eyes of the public but this really only happens because there are people who are doing the needful work behind the scenes loading the analyzers developing VOC assays figuring out where to get pipette tips it doesn't it doesn't happen without those people so I, I would like to see that continue to to bolster um, across the healthcare system in terms of the change in the lab obviously is the number of people I mean we I think we started at 67 staff we're over 200 now um, in the same space uh, I mean other than a um, taking over a classroom just down the hall we managed to put all those people in the same area so that's quite amazing when you walk down and it's uh, 
certainly with everybody masking and social distancing, it's hard to know who's who. Um, certainly, I don't know <laughs> in the lab, um, but they do say hi, so I say hi back. Um, I think the other big piece is, you know, the amount of equipment that all of this has brought, uh, you know, counting some of the bigger pieces analyzers, we brought in close to 21 new pieces of equipment since COVID started. And some of these are, you know, the size of a, uh, of a smart car, uh, to put it mildly, and then they've got to be all squished into the same space we had before. So it's quite, uh, you know, amazing to walk through and see it all. From a, a future perspective, of course, is what are we going to do with all of this? I mean, I, I think there will come a time when COVID probably will continue and will continue to do testing, but not at the rates or the level we are now. It'll become a respiratory virus with flu and some of the others. And then we've got all these uh, massive pieces and, and expensive analyzers, um, which I'm not quite sure how we're going to repurpose them or where we're going to put them uh, in the future. A couple of you mentioned the the human resource shortages and the shortage of people. And Christine, you mentioned that it's not just the instrumentation scaling up, but it's also the people who are sourcing it and the people who are running it and the people behind the, the machines who are making it work and getting getting there. Um, so I'm wondering if uh, you, you as a team can speak to the shortage of medical laboratory professionals um, that we've been experiencing. You've been navigating a lot of different moving parts. So how, how has that kind of impacted the lab work um, from a shortage of, of people and staff? Well, I can talk about the initial scaling because I know that yeah. um, they, the, the scale continues, but if you, yes. <laughs> you know, paint a picture of then to now, I mean, initially we, we, we looked at really how could we upscale the individuals that we had in the lab while we were in a position of um, reduced services across the hospital. So we had, you'd think that we would have a lot of room to wiggle, but we really only had about 30% wiggle room of, of um, typical lab tests coming in where we could use other um, staff that we had. Um, but, you know, in saying that we were able to hire on some individual additional individuals. And I think that got us to this whopping number of 80. We went from 64 to 80 and we thought that was huge. Um, but what we also did was we we got really creative and, and we looked at who could we, who could help and who could be redeployed and, and leveraging even the leadership team. I mean, I, I do remember the day where Jessica was training Dr. Mazzuli how to data enter samples coming in. I've, I've got a photo of it on my phone. It makes me smile every time I look at it. So we went to that extent of training anybody who could type uh, to bringing in medical, um, actual other medical staff. We were bringing in residents, fellows, students, uh, people from other units, anybody who could do a bit of a clerical function, a customer service function, uh, managing customer expectations, really, really important. But then eventually we got to the point where the machines were full. We needed more machines. We needed more MLTs and, and they just weren't there. And so, so that's when I was speaking to the the scaling of the human resources team that, you know, for us to go in and say, here's, you know, 60 hiring requisitions, can you find these people for us? And their eyes were as, as big as saucers. Um, that that also plays a huge part in the, the finding of, of additional lab resources. But, you know, we went through the exercise of, of interviewing, we went through working with the Michener Institute on, on how could we use science grads um, in a meaningful way to enable testing. Um, and where could our authority as MLTs be delegated to other individuals to do some of the, the technical work and, and to go at this with a real consciousness to, to patient safety. Um, and we were able to, to get there. I think Sinai is really lucky for its reputation that it does draw um, a good number of applicants. 
Um, we, we do happen to be in a, a fairly large metropolitan area where there are a lot of resources potentially to draw some. But the other piece is, is that some of these individuals are working, you know, three and four part-time jobs. And so there's a, a bit of a, of, a, of a personal feeling that I have, it's like, you know, how are we, how are we continuing to do this to, to lab resources who feel that they have to respond to the call? And they're stretching themselves so many different ways. I mean, this is just going to continue to compound the, the broader burnout risk. And so we certainly had a view to that when we were doing some of our, our hiring as well. But, you know, since then, we still hired more. So, so Jessica, I'm, I'm confident it has changed significantly <laughs> since we were doing this in October. So we were able to, Christine, as Christine said, hire uh, and get creative with our assigned duties. Um, but we are seeing the burnout now. We mm -hmm. see staff on leave. Uh, we see staff retiring and as those positions still need to be filled we we are now at a point with a limited pool with new some new graduates coming but the pool's not growing so as all the hospital network grows as we all try to hire to fill leaves to fill resignations to fill retirements it's getting more difficult you're not alone in that but it's it's such a hard issue to, to navigate that the only issue is, which is unfortunate, that many of these positions are temporary, mm -hmm. which then makes it very difficult to retain good quality people who you spend, you invest time to train them, bring them up to speed, knowing that if they could find a permanent position somewhere else, they'll leave. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, you know, we all want some degree of security. And I think as Christine said, you know, we have staff that do two shifts at our uh, lab, then go somewhere else to do mm -hmm. a couple of shifts and so on. And yes, it's manageable for a while, but, but you know, you get the burnout. They're waiting for that opportunity that one of these places might offer them a full-time position and then they take it. And then you're, you're kind of stuck without um, having anybody. Uh, I, I think the, you know, the other issue is to some extent th there was no sort of provincial or even local sort of coordinated effort in recruiting people. We're competing with the lab down the street, across the road for the same limited resources. And there was no real effort to sort of say, okay, let, how do we manage this so that uh, we distribute these people or somehow recruit them to manage in areas where they're most needed uh, so that you know, one, one area doesn't have an excess without the volumes. You know, there was no matching of where the volume was with the resources. You mentioned in your write-up that we got that if a lab is down for any reason or as backlogs increase, that you kind of offer to shoulder the load. I also imagine that those principles of collaboration and connection have built within your own team as well. Um, so I'm wondering about if you can speak to what your principles are of, of collaboration and connection, um, especially with how it's played out in the pandemic. Sure. I think it's it's really noble that you think that there were a whole bunch of principles. <laughs> so, you know, and when I was thinking about how I might answer the question, I said, like, well, there weren't any. And so I, when I looked at it, I just said, you know, well, if you need help and we can provide help, then you can have the help. Um, and as I said earlier, just with that burden of, of having the privilege of resources, you you need to be the one who, who shoulders that load. And I think that I would say that whenever we were presented with a someone needs help um, opportunity, and, and probably that would be, continue to be the case, is that we, we really were looking for ways to 
provide some relief for the team. So if it was more volume coming through an interface where we wouldn't have maybe a burden of data entry or manual results reporting on the other end, that was something we, we sought to leverage. And so if there was a chance for us to take one type of a client group instead of another, mm -hmm. um, ensuring that everyone still stayed whole, we would have liked things to flow through an interface. We would have liked for things to, um, to have any kind of um, automation or close proximity to go with it. But I don't think that that stopped us though. In, in many cases, we just said, oh, okay, well, we're getting work from this area that we've never had before and it's gonna look and feel like this. Uh, well, then we just set expectations. Say, okay, well, this is gonna take us a little longer because it's gonna be entirely manual and there's a bit of transit time, what have you. And we just braced ourselves, embraced the team, um, knowing something complicated was coming and maybe had an opportunity to have a particular employee just weather that. I mean, that happened a lot with the long-term care outreach where uh, swabs were just coming in from everywhere and we weren't prepared for it, but we, we just knew we had to do something with it because moving it on was not in anybody's uh, best interest, nor was arguing the point. All we could do was say, okay, well, this is our lot in life today. We'll continue to raise to an appropriate table that these types of issues are not helpful, but but we know that we need to get samples tested because we had the, the onboard space. I think the biggest consideration um, was always what would upend the team and what could the team shoulder the most. But when we knew it was going to be a problem, we just um, said, okay, guys, here's what's happening. What can we do together? I think the, the biggest eye-opener for everybody, probably so far in the grand scheme of how to support somebody was when public health in the summer needed to be down for, for three to four days because they were doing an IT change. So imagine um, as the second biggest lab, hearing that the biggest lab is, is shutting their shop down for a few days, that's, that's a big deal, right? Because these are orange helicopters coming in with samples from the far remote north that are already aged and, and how could Sinai be positioned to, to help them out? It didn't, it wasn't a matter of would we, it was just how would we? Um, and I think that that's just a, it's a really nice um, legacy to have it, and to continue to, to reflect on as we are always approached with questions like this. Can we, will you, how, how soon could you? Because um, all of these weird little nuances keep coming up and, and the first phone number that people seem to be picking out is, is Tony and Jessica's with, with, hey, can you? And usually the answer is yes or yes if. And I think that's just a really strong legacy to keep having. So two, two of Sinai's values are service and discovery. And I think another way we showed this is as we were one of the first labs to not only start COVID testing, but bring on a lot of new technologies that came available, we were looked at as a resource. So not only do we publish our protocols and, and what we do in the lab, but we were able to support a lot of the labs to bring on this new testing, to see how we developed yeah. it, to see what workflow, how things work, so we can support them getting up and testing as soon as they can to help the provincial network. Um, so I think in that way too, we supported a lot of hospitals, a lot of um, different sites to provide great service as, as soon as they can based on our, our examples. You know, it, it was recognized early that this was a, a provincial effort that, that, you know, we could have said, no, we're looking after our Sinai UHN patients and clients only. and you know, what happens out there is, is not for us to, to worry about. And, and really, I, I think, fortunately, we were able to see the bigger picture and say, no, this is a provincial effort and we've got to do our part to contribute. And, and that continues today. I mean, you know, uh, every week we get a call that so-and-so's instruments are down or they're short-staffed. Can we decant 500,000 samples to you? 
um, you know, starting tomorrow. It's not like you have a week to plan and start staffing and rescheduling people. It's tomorrow morning, we need to start sending you a thousand more samples and, and being able to respond to that, I think is, is critical in, in this, um, you know, this sort of provincial effort that, um, you know, we're all trying to achieve. Absolutely, it's critical. With each wave, um, we bring on more equipment, we evolve the VOC testing, we're ready to jump in to do sequencing where um, we've done it once and we'll, we'll continue to do it. Yeah, I, that's an awesome note <laughs> to end on. Thank you so much to all of you uh, for joining me today. I know everyone is so busy right now, especially given everything. So thank you so much for taking the time. This has been The Dish. This episode was recorded, produced, and edited in our office overlooking Hamilton on the Niagara Escarpment. The Dish is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can reach us anytime at mlpao at mlpao.org. If you would like your lab to be featured in our next episode, we would love to hear from you. Please let us know. Through this pandemic and every day, we are making sure Ontarians see you, hidden heroes overcoming immeasurable odds. Thank you so much for listening and stay safe.